0: First Corinthians chapter 15. In this chapter, Paul deals with the key doctrinal problem, which has led to their wrong behavior in so many areas. And that key issue is that of the resurrection. Paul makes his argument in three parts, and there's much to learn not only about what he has to say here, but the whole idea of trying to persuade someone uh, of a particular point. First of all, he deals with the common ground that exists between himself and the Corinthians. That is, what he preached and the other apostles preached and what the Corinthians believe: That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then Paul adds other appearances not somehow to give more proof you know, that Jesus was resurrected because the Corinthians believed this but in part to show that he is a part of the resurrection tradition. Having established the common ground, because if there is no common ground, then how can there be any dialogue? He then points to the contradictions in their position. So he starts out by saying, what do we agree on? And they've got that established. Now he says, okay, let's say say for the sake of argument that you're right. What are the implications of your position? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus was not raised from the dead. And if he was not raised from the dead, then that has sort of a domino effect. The apostles are liars, what they say about God. The Corinthians are still in their sins. Those who have died are lost. I mean, it's all over for them. Um, Of all people in the world, the Corinthian believers should be pitied. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then why is it that there are some who practice baptism for the dead, if? If the dead are gone, if they're lost, why bother to do that? And if there is no resurrection, then why does Paul risk his life daily for the sake of the gospel? But as Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And this changes everything. We saw last Sunday that at the end of the second part, uh, in verses 33 and 34, Paul points to their wrong behavior as flowing out of bad doctrine, and he calls on them to wake up, to sober up. Their perception of what isn't true, of what is true and real, has been altered, and he calls on them to stop sinning. See, their behavior is not simply, oh, those poor misguided Corinthians, bad doctrine, so they're not doing certain things as they should. For Paul, their behavior is sinful, and he tells them to stop sinning. Today we come to Paul's third argument, or third part of the argument, with regard to the resurrection. And here he, he deals with the question of how the dead are raised, specifically the matter of the resurrection body. I want to just read one verse as, as we start, this, just by way of introduction. Verse number 35, because I think this is the key to this passage. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? There's a definite shift here in, in what Paul has been doing. First the common ground, then the implications of what the Corinthians believe, And now he's, he's changed direction. Now he wants to deal with the two questions, which are actually one, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they come? Something else happens, and if you were to sit down and read this chapter aloud, You will notice that in the first half, up to verse 34, you keep hearing the word, the dead. It occurs 11 times, the dead. It'll only occur three times in the section we're looking at today. But more than that, in the section we will look at today, we see the word, body. Ten times, it doesn't occur at all. And so there's a shift from the dead to the concept of the body. Um... The two are related. They're not two separate ideas. The dead doesn't simply mean people who who have died, but there are dead bodies that are buried in the grave. Now Paul wants to talk about those dead bodies, and so he uses the word in Greek soma for the body, um, and we'll talk about the resurrection body. You will notice in verse 35 that we see that shift. How are the dead raised, Necros, the dead And then with what kind of body will they come? So the argument, or the language, at least the vocabulary, shifts a bit. The first question I think deals with the resurrection sort of in general, the power behind the resurrection. At least we might see it that way. The second question makes it clear that this is the issue at hand. What what, What is the nature of the resurrection body? And here in this section, we come to the heart of the matter. This has been the problem all along. The Corinthians believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because they believe his corpse was resuscitated. He'd been dead three days, so he hadn't begun to decay yet. So, in a sense, you know, someone brings the paddles, you know, and sort of gives him the electric shock, and his heart starts beating again, the blood starts flowing, and he is resuscitated. So, the resurrection of Jesus is not a problem. But for someone who has been dead for a long time, their corpse has now begun to decompose, or in fact has decomposed to dust, how can you resuscitate such a body? This is the problem that Paul deals with in this section. And remember that for Paul, the resurrection is key. I mean, this is the key doctrine of the gospel. To deny the resurrection is to deny any connection between us right now and heaven. What will happen after we die? To deny the resurrection is to say that Jesus was not raised. And for Paul, the resurrection of Christ is absolutely tied to our resurrection. More than that, I think, in this particular passage, the body that Jesus had after the resurrection points to the kind of bodies you and I will have after the resurrection. His argument here, again, is in three parts. First of all, he will discuss seeds and bodies. Then he will talk about Adam and Christ, which he had done earlier. And now he sort of explains. And then finally, why it is necessary for us to be transformed. Why it is necessary for us to have a new body. First of all, verses 35 through 44, the first section here. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, the body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. As I said, verse number 35 opens this section with a pair of questions, which apparently had come up in the Corinthian church. And... Just to remind you of what we've seen in 1 Corinthians, the questions they ask aren't questions like, Dear Paul, we would like to know about this. There are more statements of fact. Paul, you say this, we don't agree. How can that be true? Therefore, this is what we think. And the Corinthians believed that they were now in resurrection bodies. The resurrection had already happened. And Paul says, no, 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 there's resurrection yet to come. Oh, yeah, how is that going to happen? What kind of body will the resurrected people have? There's real cynicism and skepticism in this question. If you think a minute, if in fact resuscitation is how they view resurrection, then they had a really, I mean, for them, Paul's view of resurrection is very bizarre. It would almost be like for us a modern horror picture, where you have sort of the walking undead, you know, people who have decomposed, so to speak, and they, you know, they've been resuscitated, but they still have gaps. They have things missing. Uh, that's, I think, what the Corinthians thought of the resurrection, and Paul must correct their thinking in this in this way. Paul begins his response by saying, "How foolish!" This is how the NIV has it. And I was telling Alicia about this in Sunday school. This has actually been toned down quite a bit. Uh, The King James has it much closer to what Paul said, "...thou fool." Now, Paul's not doing name-calling. He's not, you know, sort of putting the Corinthians down. He's not saying they've lost their minds. Rather, he is using the word fool in the Old Testament sense. And by the way, in this passage, actually throughout this chapter... The Old Testament is very important. Paul quotes from the Old Testament several times, and I think his thinking is very much Old Testament. The first Adam, the last Adam. And then he will quote from Isaiah and then from Hosea. So, he's very much in the Old Testament way of thinking. And in the Old Testament, a fool is someone who has failed to take into account that God exists. That is, the fool is someone who looks at a situation and says... Uh, this is the solution, or this cannot be solved, this is hopeless. The fool is one who says that, never recognizing or, or forget, they've forgotten that God exists. And that's why the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The foolish person in the book of Proverbs is someone who lives as though God does not exist. If you think about that, that's is profoundly convicting, because I fear that much of our lives, much of our days, we are fools. Because, well, here, I've got it. I'll take care of it. You get in the car, you put the key in, you turn it, and, and you're ready to go. And, and do we think God is there? God is the one who holds all things together. It is the fool who acts as though God is not there. And in this respect, the Corinthians are fools. Because it's not possible to be resurrected. How can you be resurrected? What kind of body? And Paul's like, God can do anything that He wants. Why is the resurrection a problem for you? You are fools because you have failed to remember that God exists. And Paul starts out, I think, rather simply, as one author puts it. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you hold the answer in your hands. Simply look at the way God has arranged the natural order of plant life. In the everyday occurrence of the seed, you have the evidence to answer your question. Paul says, look at seeds. When you plant a seed, it's tiny. You put it in the ground, and for the seed to work, it has to die. It has to cease to be a seed. It opens up. And then a plant that germinates and it begins and it breaks out of the ground. And then you have a plant or a vine, a bush, a tree that looks very much different than the seed that you first put into the ground. And so Paul says, here, you know, think about it. A seed must be planted. It must die. And second of all, if you want a pumpkin, you don't plant a pumpkin You plant a pumpkin seed. In the same way, if you want a resurrection body, you don't plant a resurrection body. You plant the seed, and from that will, in fact, come the resurrection body. God's, God's purposes are not thwarted by death. In fact, God's purposes are accomplished in spite of death. The seed is the key. But how does this all work? Well, Paul says, God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. For those of you who work in the garden, uh, or have worked in the garden, aren't you ever amazed? I mean, usually you get too busy with the weeds and fertilizing and weeding and all that, but how that a little tiny thing, after a number of weeks, it starts and then it gets bigger and then it flowers and the flower turns into a fruit. It's really quite amazing. And, and how does this work? Paul says, God does this. It's the fool who says there is no God. It's all, it's all a process. Paul says, no, no. This is what God is doing. God gives to each seed its own body. And if in matters of agriculture... God does this for seeds and causes things to grow. What are we to think of the resurrection? Do we think somehow that is beyond his capacity to somehow produce a resurrection body? Paul then shifts from talking about seeds to talking about bodies. And In fact, when he talks about God giving it to the kind of body, that's the transition there. He elaborates there are different kinds of flesh. You have human flesh, animal, uh, fowl, poultry and fish. They're all different kinds of flesh. Um, And here he's not talking about the form, you know, that a chicken looks different than a cow, but rather the substance of the flesh. Then he talks about the heavenly bodies, the celestial bodies versus the terrestrial. And here the King James uses both of those words. Um, And he says, you know, it's just different. Things are different. The sun is different from the moon. They're different from the stars. Each each of the stars is different. Things are just different. Why, Corinthians, are you thinking this body, resurrection body, have to be the same? Why are you thinking that? A seed, tiny, ends up in this magnificent tree. Different kinds of flesh, different kinds of glory. Corinthians, why don't you get this? So Paul says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. This is the way it is. And he gives us here what one author calls a staccato series of of four clauses in which we see repeated the phrase, it is sown, it is raised. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. This is is so important. Paul will repeat this one three times later on in the passage. It is sown in honor, that is, or in dishonor, that is, humiliation. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Well, you know, I think the Corinthians would agree with all of these. Um, For them, the body was perishable. It was lowly, dishonor. It was weak, Um, and, and they don't want anything to do with that. But being raised imperishable, or being raised in honor, being raised in power, they don't get that. But Paul mentions one more. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. It is possible that of all the things Paul wrote in this letter to the Corinthians, This must have been the most shocking to them. I think when they heard this, there might have been an audible gasp in the congregation. The natural body, uh, the word in Greek is soukikos, physical body, they have no problem with that. But Paul does the unthinkable. He takes their word, spiritual. They're saying, look at us, we're spiritual. Paul, you're not spiritual. There's some in the church that aren't spiritual, but we who are spiritual. Paul takes that same word, spiritual, which is sort of immaterial, this, this ooh, we have the power, and he applies it to a body. I think for them, they would have said, Paul, that's an oxymoron. You've put two words together that don't belong together. Spiritual. And body, I mean, spiritual—you can't see, you can't touch. It's—it's just this. It's spirit, and body—you can see, you can touch it. It's physical. Paul, you've done something seriously wrong here. You've put two things together that don't go together. What is Paul doing here? When he says spiritual, by the way, we should have already seen this from earlier in the book. He doesn't mean what they mean. Here he is not talking about the stuff of the body. What he's talking about is the supernatural aspect of the body, the work of the spirit. He will explain this as we go along. Verses 45 through 49, the analogy of Adam and Christ. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, The last Adam, a living spirit, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was made of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. This points back to something that Paul brought up in verses 21 and 22. um, The analogy between Adam and Christ. And, And the point here, I don't think, is to give us a lesson about the person of Christ, but to demonstrate from Scripture the reality of what he's just said. Physical body, spiritual body. In Adam, we are told in verse 22, we all die. In Christ, we are all made alive. And now Paul continues that Adam, when he was created, was made into a living being. And the word that is used there is the word he used earlier. It's a root word for having a body. Man had a physical body. Christ, on the other hand, was made a life-giving spirit. And here the root word for the word spiritual is given. So Adam came first, natural, physical body. Christ came second spiritual body. Adam was from the dust of the earth. Christ is from heaven. Those who descend from Adam, that's us, were of the earth. Those who belong to Christ are of heaven. In the same way that as Adam is our great-great, and how many greats you want to put, grandfather, he is our ancestor. We have physical bodies like him. We have his likeness. So if we belong to Christ, we will have the likeness of Christ. And by the way, I've been doing something deliberately, and I don't know if you've noticed it. But I've been using the name Christ. But if you look at verses 45 to 49, you don't see that there. Paul does not use Christ there. He talks about the last Adam, the first Adam, the last Adam. And, and, And why does he do that? We, it's a lot easier to say Christ than it is to say the last Adam. He's trying to make a point. The first Adam is the beginning of the human race. We have human bodies because we come from Adam. The last Adam is the beginning of a new race. He had a resurrection body. We will have a resurrection body as well. Adam was the beginning of the human race. Christ is the beginning of a new race, those who are resurrected. But first was the physical Adam, the physical body, and then the last Adam, Christ, the spiritual body, the one who had the resurrection body. And now we come to this most wonderful part, I think, of 1 Corinthians, perhaps what you are most familiar with in 1 Corinthians, as Paul almost triumphantly speaks of the resurrection, as one writer puts it, with this magnificent crescendo, Paul brings to a conclusion the argument that began in verse 35. It's it's really quite powerful. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery: we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. Here Paul responds to those opening questions. Is it possible for the dead to be raised? What kind of body will they have? And Paul says, yes, they will be raised. And what kind of body they will be raised with a transformed body. That which was perishable and mortal, the physical body, has now been replaced. The physical was planted in the ground like a seed. And what comes out of the ground is something radically different, a transformed body. In this passage, Paul gives us some new information, however, which again must have come as a shock to the Corinthians. Probably the second most shocking thing in, in 1 Corinthians. Paul argues here that not only the dead will be transformed, but so will the living. That is to say, when Jesus comes back, some people will still be alive. Not everyone's going to be dead. And those who are alive, they don't simply get to walk into heaven because they're still alive. The Corinthians might say, well, well, of course they will because they don't need to be res- resuscitated. Paul's like, no. Everybody needs to be transformed. Everyone who has a perishable, mortal, physical body needs to be transformed into an imperishable, immortal, spiritual body. Because as he begins, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot walk into heaven With this body. It's it's a different dimension. It's a different reality. You cannot go from this life to that life and keep the body and get into heaven. It just won't work. It just doesn't happen. A transformation must be... It is necessary. It must take place. Both the dead and the living must be transformed. And it will all happen at the same time. The dead will be resurrected and transformed. The living, they don't need to die, but they must also be transformed. As Paul says, you know, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, let me explain a mystery to you. And just to remind you, the word mystery doesn't mean something nobody knew except Paul. A mystery in the New Testament is something that in the Old Testament was not known. But now with the coming of Christ, it has been revealed. And this is the mystery. When Jesus comes back, some people will still be alive. By the way, Jesus told the disciples this in in Matthew 24, that there will be two people, one will be taken, one left behind. I mean, There is this sense that the living will still be around when Jesus comes back. Otherwise, we'd know, oh, the second coming is going to happen because we're all going to die. Uh, You know, that when the last person dies, then the resurrection. No, no, some people will still be alive. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Here, Paul, I think, is pointing to the instantaneous nature of the transformation in a way that I can only talk about, but I can imagine this body that i have as a descendant of adam will be transformed in a split second into a resurrection like jesus had a resurrected body just like jesus had after the resurrection by the way the the phrase here the last trumpet is very very much an old testament idea particularly in the prophetic writings In Joel chapter 2, the warning of judgment, the trumpet is blown. In Zechariah, to announce the coming of the Lord, you blow the trumpet. And in Isaiah 27, to summon God's people from the four corners of the earth, the trumpet will be blown. And so Paul's very much in this Old Testament way of thinking, the trumpet will sound and we will all be transformed. And when this happens... That wonderful promise that we have from the book of Isaiah will occur. Death is swallowed up in victory. This phrase, by the way, this, this using of, of Isaiah, points back to what we saw last Sunday, that very difficult passage there right in the middle of his second point. The last enemy to be defeated will be death. When Christ comes back and we are resurrected We are transformed if we're still alive. That is the end of death. Christ must put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy will be death. In verse number 55, Paul almost seems to be taunting death. If you look at it, where, O death, is your victory? Come on, death. Where is it? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, Paul is in a physical body and he knows that all things being equal, if the Lord does not return within a certain period of time, Paul will die. Paul will be buried. His body will decompose. So we might say to Paul, hey, don't be too cocky there. Here you are taunting death. Uh-uh. Understand. Paul has seen a resurrection body he saw jesus and he knows if there's one resurrection body there've got to be more coming that'll be one of those is mine paul has seen the defeat of death in the life of jesus and so death come on death do your worst what's the worst you can do to me death take my life but you can't stop me from being resurrected You cannot stop me from being transformed. When Christ comes back, I will have a new body. Death is powerless over the dead. It cannot stop God from raising us from the dead. In the same way that God raised Christ from the dead with a transformed body, we will be raised from the dead with a transformed body as well. In the meantime, death tries to do its worst. Death continues to sting. If you look at verse number 56, the sting of death is sin. And death certainly continues to sting. By the way, just parenthetically, if you stop and think a minute, Paul uses the word sin more often in this chapter than he does in the rest of the book. Which is really quite amazing because the Corinthians have some serious problems. They have some serious... You've got a man who's sleeping with his stepmother... You have people who are ignoring each other in the Lord's Supper. And you just have these lists of things. And Paul doesn't use sin in talking about those sins. He only does in chapter 6, when he talks about sexual immorality is a sin against the body. And then in chapter 7, uh, where they're talking about should engaged couples get married, he goes, get married, you're not committing a sin. It's only here that he really seems to hone in on sin. In verse number 3, that Christ died for our sins. In verse number 17, uh, he talks about the fact that if Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. And in verse number 34, come to your senses and stop sinning. Uh, Death does its worst in our life through sin. And what the Corinthians have been doing is living I don't know if it's, if you could say this, but they've been living the life of death. They've been living the life of death, because they've been living lives of sin. They've been doing that which is wrong. And Paul says, "Stop it. Stop sinning. Come to your senses. He says, by the way, the sting of death is sin. Corinthians, you're still, death is here, and it's evident in your life because of sin. And then he says the power of sin is the law. And this really, I have to tell you, seems out of place. If we're in the book of Romans, chapter 7, we're there. This makes sense. But the law has not been an issue in, in the book of First Corinthians. This is the first time the law is mentioned in, in this regard. And um, Why does he bring it up? I think he brings it up because of sin. What defines sin? How do I know if something is wrong? Because I feel bad? Because somebody tells me? No. God's law defines sin. And you may remember, I've told you that throughout 1 Corinthians, one of the things I found really puzzling was that where Paul could have quoted chapter and verse and said, listen, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, this is wrong, this is sin. And he doesn't do that. The man sleeping with his stepmother, what does Paul say? You know what? Pagans don't do that. In chapter 11, when he talks about women who are dressing like men, and he says, listen, the, the culture tells us that's wrong. And I, I keep waiting for Paul to say, the Bible says don't do that. Well, here, this is what he does. Law defines sin. And now, First Corinthians, you know, in this book, you Corinthian believers, let's go back and look at what Paul has written. Let's look at all these things. Divisions, taking each other to court, incest. Treating each other with disrespect? Those are sins. You've been living the life of death. And and do you want to know if it's sin or not? Look at the law. The law will tell you that what you're doing is wrong. And though it seems out of place, I think Paul makes a very strong point here. And then verses 57 and 58. 57 is a doxology. Uh, uh, I think in miniature it is praising God That he gives us, through the Lord Jesus Christ, victory over death and sin. Not yet. Not yet. That is yet to come. And all things being equal, we don't know when the Lord will return. We have all here buried loved ones. The day may come when people will bury us. But that's not the end. We will have the victory over death, over the grave, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing the resurrected Christ, the transformed body, the one who could suddenly appear in a room, but who also ate, yeah, that's the transformed body. We know that it's coming because it's already here in the person of Christ. And then verse 58 Which is a wonderful verse that I think we may miss the wonder of it. Um, It is, in many ways, the bookend of what we saw at the very beginning of the chapter. It is, in many ways, the positive side of the coin to the negative of what we saw in verses 1 and 2. Um, It's also, back up a bit, it is the reverse of what we see in verses 33 and 34. Remember there, Paul said, stop sinning. Come to your senses. Here, Paul tells them, stand firm. Always give uh, yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But as I said, it's also the great way to end the chapter, not simply a section, but the chapter, because at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about this is the gospel on which you have taken your stand. Hold firmly to what I have taught you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And now Paul says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's no resurrection. It's absolutely a joke. We've wasted our time. We've wasted our lives. But the resurrection of Christ means we will be raised and therefore, we should stand firm in this truth. The difference between verses 1 and 2 and verse 58, in a word, resurrection. No resurrection, it's in vain. The resurrection of Christ, you know that your work is not in vain. As I said, I think a couple of weeks ago, resurrection is something we talk a lot about. It's, it's what we believe it's part of our creed it's just really really hard to imagine it will, we, we won't see it coming it will be instantaneously we will have a new form of existence and you know, we, even with science fiction sort of desensitize us to the strange and unusual this is something that really is, is hard to comprehend but it will happen and it will be an amazing thing. I remember years ago, uh, a teacher of mine gave me uh, something from, from a fern plant to put in the ground. And I had failed to do that when I should have. But the time came and I went ahead and I put it in the ground just to see if it would grow. And I'll never forget my nephew, Matthew, who is now 23 or 24 years old. Um, I noticed one day that a sprout had come out of the ground. Something green. had It hadn't died, and it it was beginning to grow. And I I said, Matt, here, come look at this. And he was amazed that this thing that we had put in the dirt a couple of days before had grown up. Something green was coming out of the ground. And he called his mom and dad, he said, Dad, Dad, you've got to see this. You've got, Please, if this, you've got to see this. It growed. It growed. And he was just amazed at something, this dark clump of roots, and something came out. I think Paul wants the Corinthians to be just as amazed. And it will be amazing that if the Lord does not come back for a hundred years, at that point will be dust. But when Christ comes back, we will have transformed bodies. It will be amazing. And how wonderful that will be. In the meantime, we live in a world of death. Death does its worst, it tries to do its worst to us through sin. Paul says, stand firm. Don't lose hope. Resurrection is coming. Transformation is coming. Let's pray together. Our Father, today we have talked of wonderful things, but frankly things that are beyond our capacity to fully appreciate. We do thank you for the resurrection of Jesus, that you raised him from the dead, that transformed a body, and one day you will do the same for us how wonderful and and yet how bewildering this is. But as Paul told the Corinthians, what they believe affects how they live. May we embrace this truth and may it change the way we live. May we stand firm, not lose hope, not think that what we are doing is in vain. At the same time, fight the good fight, knowing that death is trying to do its worst to us. That sin is seeking to destroy us. But we give thanks to you for the victory that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. The resurrected Jesus, in his name. Amen.